Good. Keep your place there at Luke chapter 12. And this morning we will finish our short series on the parables of Jesus Christ. And if you include today's, we have gone through 11 parables in what will be about six weeks. Uh, Here's where we've been, and I want us to sort of capture these lessons um, before we move into our 11th parable. Uh, First of all, the parable of the soils. Four soils represent four heart conditions. There are three warnings, one validation, and within that one validation, there are different levels of fruitfulness. The seed is sown, the seed is the Word of God, Jesus says, and the Word is always good. The seed is always good. If it doesn't bring forth fruit, it's a problem with the heart. It's a problem with the soil. Conversion leads to the fruit of genuine discipleship. Jesus said things like this, you will know a tree by its fruit. Secondly, the parable of the lamp, you treat a lamp according to its nature. You don't hide it under a bed. You don't cover it up. Why? The purpose of the lamp was to shine. And Jesus is the light of the world. He is telling the religious leaders that I came not to hide but I'm shining. We need to be sure to treat the eternal light according to its nature, not to hide Him, not to run back into darkness. John 3.19 And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Our actions, our response to Jesus should be within accordance with who He is. Don't Hide a lamp. Third, the parable of the measure. Those who hear Jesus' words with their heart, obeying with their heart, more will be added to them. Those who refuse to hear Jesus from their heart in obedience will in the end have nothing. You will be rewarded by the measure you use. Right? Why do we think God will give us more illumination if we haven't obeyed the light He's already shined upon us? Fourth, the parable of the seed growing of itself. Do you remember this one? Mark says that he went out, he sowed the seed, he went inside, uh, he, came, he came out and, the, and it was growing up and the farmer didn't know how it grew. That doesn't mean he was ignorant of the process, ignorant of sort of agricultural rules, but the, the farmer is admitting, I had very little to do with that. There is life within the seed all by itself and it brings forth fruit. But there's a bigger picture. Jesus was saying the kingdom, though it starts subtly and though it seems hidden underground, it'll bring forth fruit. It'll grow. And what is growing will culminate in a harvest. Why was he teaching this? Because the religious leaders were considering the arrival of the kingdom, the inauguration of the kingdom as Christ, as a weak thing. But be careful. It'll grow and you won't know how it will grow. Interestingly, then, on the back of that is the parable of the mustard seed. Unlike the seed growing of itself, there is no emphasis on the period of development. The focus is placed on the astonishing result. Small, seemingly weak at the beginning, massive and staggering at the end. What Jesus is doing, he's comparing the kingdom to initial appearance, appearance, weak, and final result, staggering. Then the parable of the unforgiving servant, the sixth parable we considered. 
We call this the parable of proof. Proof of whether you have experienced God's grace or not. The king forgives a man who owed a huge amount, but that man returns and refuses to forgive another man, his equal, not a king. He refuses to forgive him of a little amount. And so we said an unforgiving heart gives evidence of an unforgiven heart. An unforgiving heart gives evidence of an unforgiven heart. Jesus is depicting for us the heart of a superficially repentant person. Number seven, the parable of the two sons. Not the parable of the prodigal, the lost son, but the the first parable of the two sons. The first son, I mean, the father says, go work in my vineyard, go work in my garden. And the first son refuses. And then what? What does he do? He initially refuses, but then comes back around and what? He obeys. The second son obeys on the surface, but then never follows through and goes out into the garden. What Jesus is doing, he's putting a very fine line, finer than often we have done. He's putting a very fine line between belief and behavior. Belief and behavior. He says no, he ends up coming back and he's working. The other one says, oh yeah, I'll go. And he doesn't work. So which of these two sons honored the father? Which one obeyed? The one who initially refused, but then ended up obeying. John says in 1 John 2.17, whoever does the will of God abides forever. And Jesus taught in Matthew 12.33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Then we went to the parable of the vineyard. God, like the master of the vineyard, the, the, the owner of the vineyard, is patient and long-suffering, but a day is coming when, he, when those who have rejected the king and his ownership will be crushed. And if that sounds too hard, that's the exact wording that is found in that parable. Jesus, like the son who is sent after the king's servants, is the one who is taken outside of the vineyard and killed. And the Jewish leaders, like the tenants, portray the choice at hand. Either worship the Son or intensify your efforts to reject Him. But in the end, all will give an account to who? To the King. Because He's the owner. Right? That's the question Jesus poses. What will the owner of the vineyard do when He shows up and those tenants have killed His servants and His Son? Then the parable of the wedding feast. Worthiness and unworthiness has to do not with being natural citizens, right? The king invited them. They refused. Worthiness and unworthiness have to do with the response to the king's invitation. The ones we expect to go to the banquet, don't. The ones we don't expect to go to the banquet, attend. Which is a great story. And remember we said this, we love happy endings. But it wasn't a happy ending because even after that, there's someone there and, and the man who's throwing this banquet feast, this wedding feast for his son, goes up to this man. He goes, friend, how did you get in here? He represents the religious officials who had initially accepted the invitation through the law and the prophets. Matter of fact, they sit in Moses' seat. They're the authorities. They're wearing the robes. 
They're at the geography. They're in Israel. They're at the religious structure. They're at the temple. And Jesus is asking, how did you get in here? Kind of like John the Baptist when he said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come when they showed up at his baptism? The charade of their acceptance was exposed by their rejection of John the Baptist and Jesus. And so the king goes up and he says, how did you get into the banquet? And he's cast out because he does not have the proper wedding garment. He, does, he is not there for the son. And then the tenth, the parable of the lost son, is really a parable about two sons and a father. We are intended to contrast the two. Often we end the story when the prodigal comes home. It's a joyous time. He's restored, and that's true. But that's not all the truth of the parable, because then you have a third large section that deals with the older son who stayed home and dishonored the father by staying close to him. He refuses to go in. He rejects the invitation. The father comes out to entreat him. And he's in his pride and his arrogance, treating the father simply like a business owner. And he says, I will not go in and rejoice. Of course, last week we said the invitation is twofold. To younger brothers, come home. The father is waiting. And to older brothers, come inside and rejoice in salvation. That brings us to our 11th parable this morning. Often called the rich fool. And because it's called the rich fool, and we don't often consider ourselves rich, we dismiss it. So let's talk about that. The parable is what is called an example parable. Like the parable of the Good Samaritan. The example is... It's not necessarily your religious robes or titles that cause you to be seen as doing well in God's eyes because they passed by, but the example is to be like this person who helps. This also is an example parable, but this is an example of how not to live. The parable has, typically we've seen, remember that triangular pattern? An authority figure, two subordinates that contrast. This is a simple structure. You have the authority figure, not a father or a landowner. It's directly God, because God speaks audibly to this man. So you have God, and then you have one rich, wealthy landowner. But the contrast is still to be made because it says, so is everyone, this, this subordinate, so is everyone who is not rich towards God. So that's the contrast. So this morning, the contrast is not prodigal older brother, it's not the son who refuses and obeys compared with the son who says he would obey but never does. This morning it is rich, wealthy landowner and you and me. So that's how we're going to fill out that triangle. You've got God, wealthy landowner, you and me. Okay, so let's look at this. Remember, Jesus is addressing an agricultural people. With all his other warnings in Scripture about the delusion and the illusion and the seducing and blinding nature of riches, it is natural that he would choose a rich, wealthy landowner. But it could have been anyone. Anyone who does not consider God and their values, their choices, and their plans. We're going to just look at it like this. Context, parable, application. Very simple. Here's the context. Look at Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. 
Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The question from the crowd connects this parable, this text, to the preceding one where Jesus is already warning the Pharisees of their greed. First, Jesus rejects the role of arbiter from the young man that cries out, Teacher, tell him to share the inheritance. I think first Jesus rejects it because that is not why the Son of God was sent. Even the Son of God must refuse to get distracted on things that are not directly connected to his mission. He does, however, take that opportunity to teach a basic understanding of how possessions relate to the purpose of life. And this is basically what he's saying. Relationship, your brother, is far more important than possessions, your inheritance. Do we agree with that? That people are more important than stuff? What Jesus is really teaching, and this still seems radical to us, is that in light of the eternal nature of God's kingdom, of which Jesus is there introducing possessions should go very far down on the scale of importance. Second, I believe Jesus refused to answer the question because he knew that it it arose from greed. Look at verse 15. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. So that's what introduces us to the parable. So let's look at the parable. Look at verse 16. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, Here we have captured in this parable the man's thinkings to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. Okay, so in ag- we don't really have an agricultural front range Colorado, so let's, let's put that in terms we would understand. I'm going to expand my business. I'm going to open another account for me. I'm going to make another business venture to make myself more wealthy. I'm going to leave this flock to take a much larger one because that's what appears to make me successful. And I will say to my soul, verse 19, you're you're capturing the man's heart now. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. It's a hedonistic lifestyle. Absent of God. That's the point. It's absent of God. Remember, in that this parable is not a condemnation on wealth. It's a condemnation on enjoying this kind of possession without considering God in eternity. Because God said to him, by the way, this sounds a lot like um, American retirement. If you just read it, what most people view of as retirement, stockpiling so I can then do what I want to do. Verse 20, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. 
And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So, here's the contrast. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. When will God enter our life and say that? What if it's tonight? I hope not. But what if tonight you hear that? Tonight's the night. Your soul is required of you. Would you be satisfied with how you lived the last week, the last month, the last two years? No, because maybe, but no, because I've just been living this whole whole time for the future when I can sit back and relax and finally have my own time in my own life. Every time I read this text, I think of a story about eight weeks after we arrived to Kenya. We traveled up to Naramaro, which is in more of the bush farming area of central Kenya. And on our way up, the friends that were taking us up into this bush area told us about a funeral they had to attend later that week of a young English college student who was home from London visiting his parents on their farm in Kenya. And this English boy went out hunting ducks with his father and they were shooting ducks and one of the ducks landed by the river. African hunters have coined a term called the Big Five. This is five animals that can do a role reversal on you at any point in the hunt. The big five are highly respected. It's lion, leopard, elephant, rhino, and Cape buffalo. But several African hunters, if you read books like Death in the Long Grass or The Last Safari, they will argue there should be a big six. Let me explain. The boy probably had no idea what happened, but when he reached down by the murky water of the river, two tons of hippopotamus came out and decapitated the boy. Now, even though they're herbivores, they have sharp, sharpened ivory, huge teeth, and it would have decapitated him immediately. They're very territorial. One seamless thrust. And this boy, what was he thinking? Can you just... What do you think he was thinking? Christmas break, home with my parents, doing what I love, hunting, and then all of a sudden, today your soul is required of you. Just like that. He was probably thinking much of what is going through some of our minds. Everything but the end of life and the eternal duration of the next life. So let's look at the application. This is the final part we're considering. The farmer stands for every person seduced by human greed, blinded by their own practical atheism, deluded by their own shallow relationship with God. It is the rich and the poor who live life without God. Is that clear? It's not just a wealthy landowner. It is the rich and the poor. It is the lawyer in D.C. and the cashier at Dollar General. It's both. It's the gardener, the statesman, the lead pastor, the nurse, the third grade teacher, the doctor, 
and the family dependent on both Wick and Snap. It's everybody who lives life thinking possessions are a God, but they're living it without God. So let's tackle the obvious first, the rich. And if you do any studies on, on the highest income annually per country, we're way up there. The rich person needs to understand that his or her possessions are not permanent. His or her position is not permanent. His or her security in this life is not permanent. His or her status in this life is not permanent. Verse 20, God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. Listen to the question. And the things you have prepared, stockpiled, lived for, Whose will they be? Remember, this is a parable with a single truth. So it's not, it's, it's not undermining how we leave something aside for our children or how we are wise stewards. A parable has one point, And the point is, if you're spending your entire life laying up possessions and riches and activities and good food and experiences without God or, or sort of that kind of commercial nod to God, where will all your things go? if you're not rich towards God. But if we only isolate this to the rich, we will miss Jesus' point. It's not the man's wealth and possessions that are condemned, but the accumulation of it solely for self-selfish enjoyment. 1 Timothy 6.10 It is the love of money, not money itself. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs. If you do not think the love of money is dangerous, people actually leave Jesus to worship it. The man's error is equating the meaning of life with abundance, status, degrees, success, and possessions. True fellowship of Jesus means embracing his teaching and his values. Doesn't mean talking about a recent sermon we heard, or I, oh, I read that blog every morning, or when I'm out when I'm out working, I'm always listening to spiritual podcasts. It actually means obedience. It means taking the values that Christ taught and living them out. Sometimes our accumulation for selfish enjoyment provides evidence that we have not yet learned Jesus' ways. So the rich. Secondly, the self-fixated. Notice what the story is silent about. The story is completely silent about the man's relationship with God. And it also shows that he's taking no thought for anyone but who? Himself. I want you to look at the text because I want you to see this. This man cares only for his good and comfort. By the way, that can include only my good and my family's comfort. If we expand it a little bit, I'm not excluded from this parable just because I'm, I'm working that way. But look at verse 17. He thought to himself, okay, so that's sort of the atheist's prayer, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. Verse 18, and there I will store all my grain 
and my goods. I think the, these personal pronouns are being used on purpose to highlight something about this man's life. In verse 19, And I will say to my soul, Soul. You just hear the back pat. You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink. It's all about him. Here's what the rich fool, here's what the self-fixated do not understand. They do not understand that they own nothing. He owned nothing. Everything he had, even his soul, could be called back at any time. Did you see that? So now whose will these things be? You just said they're my crops, my barns, my, you know, you fill in the blank. Okay, your soul is now required of you. Everything is on loan and can be called back at any time to the one who owns all things. The self-fixated need to be warned. The foolish. You know, in the scriptures, the fool is not simply substituted for stupidity or ignorance. In the Bible, a foolish person, there are overtones of immorality and stubborn unbelief. So when he says fool, this is different in, than in the Sermon on the Mount when, when we are, it says, do not call your brother fool. Okay, this is different. God is evaluating this man's character for what it truly is. Listen, listen, to, uh, let's listen to some of the other scriptures' teachings. Just, you know, wherever your mind is now, just fight against distraction and listen to what the scripture says. Listen to what Job says. If I have made gold my trust, or called find gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much, this also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges. Listen to what he says. For I would have been false to God above. That's the danger of loving stuff. Psalm 14.1 The fool says in his heart, there's no God. Psalm 49, I'm just going to read a selection of verses. Why should I fear in times of trouble? Why should I fear when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. That he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die. Listen, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Do you fear, or we might say, is your heart stirred or troubled when other people have more than you? When other people's hand finds success and you think you deserve it more? What that's revealing often in my heart and in your heart is that we're actually envious and covetous people. Whereas godly people with an understanding 
would listen to Jesus' teaching about simplicity of life and sacrificial giving. Final warning this morning to the covetous and the greedy. He said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Be on guard against it. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Here is the danger of covetousness and greed. It is socially acceptable. It's actually marketed. I watched pieces of two different college football games. And since this sermon was on my mind, almost every single commercial was trying to appeal to some discontent in my heart. Somehow, all of a sudden, I needed an Arby's sandwich. That came on, right? Like life is not going to be as happy as it could at this moment you know, if I have that sandwich. And that's not how I felt. Um, it could have been another food, but it's not certainly for me, not Arby's. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's marketed unashamedly. And we feel like, oh, I just can't be happy unless I have those things. It's not in our culture, mind you. It's not corrupt and dirty like other sins. It's easy to condemn other sins. It's easy to condemn the, the prodigal son. Yet how many of us have looked and said at the end of the story, it's the older brother who's not near the father. No, we honored him. He stayed home. He did what was right. We forget that it's found in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet. You're not even supposed to covet your neighbor's servant. His go- oh, I wish, wish my aerator guy did as well as... And maybe there's, a, there's an evaluation that's appropriate, but you're not even supposed to covet somebody who's working on your neighbor's yard. The question is, have we been deceived to disobey this command? What greed is, what covetousness is, is an insatiable desire for more and bigger. So I'd ask myself, what areas in my life are fueled right now by more and bigger? Or bigger and better? Or better and more well-known? Or more well-known and seemingly more successful? Is there something of an ungodly nature, even in my heart, in ministry that is desiring what Jesus is warning us about in this parable. Rarely do we rejoice in, in a ministry level, healthy and small. Usually healthy and small churches aren't writing the books because people don't want to hear from healthy and small. They want to hear from the CEOs who have run ministry like a business. Covetousness is a lust. It is all-consuming so that our entire focus, even if we are Godward at one point, our entire focus becomes fixated on stuff and wealth and food and experiences and activities. And there is no room. We are, we are jam-packed with stuff so that it, it even feels uncomfortable to talk about God, let alone live for Him sacrificially. That's why Jesus warned in Luke chapter 18, For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, attempts to understand that passage as involving a camel having to kneel down to go through a gate in Jerusalem have become popular. Do you know there is no evidence for that? I mean, it's a great story. You've got to unpack the camel of all the merchandise so he can squeeze through this tiny little eye gate. 
But just because it makes for good illustrative purposes doesn't mean that's what the Word of God is saying. There's no eye gate or eye of the needle gate or needle gate. And what it does is it sets aside the hyperbolic language of Jesus, the intended over-exaggeration. Because remember, when the original readers heard it, they said, then who can be saved? Well, if I can just get on my knees and unload everything and squeeze through a gate, I can still do it myself. No, their response was, who can be saved? Similarly, there's a rabbinic analogy that speaks of an elephant going through the eye of a needle, and they didn't typically use elephants in Jerusalem. The point is, you're not going to get a camel or an elephant or probably even a squirrel to fit through the eye of a sewing needle, right? So then who can be saved? It's a great question. Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. But don't miss the point. Wealth is a real hindrance to entering the kingdom of God. Why? Because salvation is placing our entire trust on Jesus Christ rather than 50% on Jesus Christ and 50% on my temporal security. I do want to make one more application and that's to the church. Remember Judas? He was in close association with Jesus, witnessed the miracles, taught, was even trusted by the other disciples to lead their group. So even within this inner group, Judas was trusted by the other disciples. He was the treasurer, if you would. He would question Jesus' decisions and he would say hypocritical things like, well, we could have sold that and given it to the poor. And I love the little parenthetical statement. He said this, why? Because he he held the money bag. You want, a, you want a real interpretation? We could have sold that and put it in the money bag and I could have stolen more. That's what he's saying. Judas isn't frugal. Judas isn't conservative. Judas is a thief. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10, verse 9, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. But it says that Judas asked in Matthew 26, verse 15, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Judas's can be bought. Remember Demas? Demas is only mentioned three times in the scriptures. He was a fellow worker with Paul and some of the other apostles, working hand in hand in ministry with them. The last thing Paul says about Demas in 2 Timothy 4.10 is Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas, his, his desertion provides proof of what Jesus taught. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, Jesus says. This is what he says about the Pharisees later on. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed Jesus. You see, the parable is for everyone. And the church is not exempt. Religious people are not exempt. So, here's the final question. Here's the final question for all of us. Are you a true worshiper of God? Or are you trying to worship something else? Are you a worshiper or a consumer? A worshiper or a hoarder? 
David Platt in his book Radical says this, We are giving in to the dangerous temptation to take the Jesus of the Bible and twist him into a version of Jesus we are more comfortable with. A nice, middle-class American Jesus, a Jesus who doesn't mind materialism and who would never call us to give away everything we have. A Jesus who brings us comfort and prosperity as we live out our Christian spin of the American dream. Platt goes on and he asks, But do you and I realize what we are doing at this point? We are molding Jesus into our image. He is beginning to look a lot like us because after all, that is whom we are most comfortable with. And the danger now is that when we gather in our church buildings to sing and lift up our hands in worship, we may not actually be worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. Instead, we may be worshiping ourselves. There is the danger of worshiping ourselves for how well we worship. Jesus' simple response, if you read the New Testament, his simple response, and it's not a foreign concept in either the Old or the New Testament, is this. One of the greatest ways to lay siege on greed, covetousness, and materialism is to give sacrificially. That doesn't just mean money. That means your time. That means entering into a broken person's life knowing that it's going to be messy. We are so good at gravitating to other clean, well-dressed people, aren't we? It's so easy to gravitate to the ones who like us in return. I've seen it. It happens here. We're so easy to move into somebody else's life unless they look like that's going to get really complicated and awkward. And we move this way. And I'm not assigning motive to anybody's heart in that. It is so easy to move towards other people just like us. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't do that? Aren't you glad one of the accusations leveled against him was, he eats with sinners. He likes them. He loves them. Here's the conclusion of the matter. The wealthy landowner in the parable who was setting himself up for a retirement of self-fixation and comfort is like anyone, quote, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus' simple remedy, give to those in need. Let me read to you Luke, Luke 11. The Lord said, now you Pharise- and I'm not calling you Pharisees this morning. I'm just telling you how hard Jesus is delivering here. Um, the Lord said, now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but you inside are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, same term, did not he who made the outside make the inside also, but give as alms those things that are within. He's saying, you Pharisees within is all greed and covetousness. And I'm going to tell you, don't give just external alms. You give alms from that which is within And behold, everything is clean for you. In the context of greed, an appropriate cleansing of the heart through repentance will lead to generosity. We have an example of this, and this is our conclusion this morning, in Luke chapter 19. And our children will know this story well. Zacchaeus, right, that wee little, I don't think he was that, he wasn't wee little. But he was little, I mean, even the town knew that. Because he had, I mean, there's a reason he climbed the tree. Right? He wasn't an outdoor sort of adventurist. He couldn't see. Why? He, he was a wee little man. Okay, so, and he was not a good little man. He was a bad little man. 
right? So, but I love this story because, because this little bad man climbs in the tree because he wants to see Jesus. It's a beautiful story. A lot better than the song we sing. Um, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, okay, this is already after the whole song, I think. Behold, Lord, listen, the half of my goods I give to the poor. That's, that's more than the law required even for a deviant man like little Zacchaeus. Half my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. That's more too. And Jesus said to him, you'd make a great church member. No, he didn't say that. He did not say that. And he said to him, listen to what he says, because you're not expecting this. I'm going to give away half if I've defrauded anyone four times. Today, this is Jesus' words, today salvation has come to this house. Were you expecting that? Not like, well done, Zacchaeus, I wish more people did that. Behavior, woohoo, behavior. No. That transformation of the heart. He's giving out of the alms from the inside, unlike the Pharisees. So Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house since he also is the son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Great news. It is nearly impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven, but, but this wee little bad man proves it's possible with God because Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Earlier in Luke, Jesus said this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And I fear some of us don't like that invitation. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. And we, we might say, I don't like that. Then we might as well just follow Joel Osteen, honestly. Or worship wealth, but don't keep saying with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, when He's not. It is estimated that King Solomon had a peak net worth of $2.2 trillion dollars Listen to what King Solomon says. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Let's pray.